Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest in, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 155. It's titled Clues to the Next Financial Crisis. Ten years ago this summer, the first signs of financial distress surfaced that culminated in the global financial crisis, including the deepest economic recession since the Great Depression and the near collapse of the financial system. Those signs went unnoticed by most investors. At the time, I was managing money professionally for institutions. I was our firm's chief portfolio strategist, chief investment strategist, and my job was to notice things and understand what they meant. I noticed some changes. I didn't understand what they meant in terms of the severity. Here's what I wrote on August 15th, 2007, on our firm's internal blog. It is interesting to see the jump in spreads, which is the incremental yields for commercial paper and other short-term investment vehicles relative to U.S. Treasuries. The commercial paper yields minus U.S. Treasury bill yields are as high as they have been since the year 2000, meaning we are seeing some dislocation in the short-term credit market. That's what I saw, some short-term dislocation. How could a jump in yields for some obscure debt instrument, commercial paper, lead to a financial crisis? That's what we're going to learn today because we need to look at those clues to see if another or see when another financial crisis potentially is coming. Now, what is commercial paper? It is short-term debt issued by companies with maturities typically of the paper less than nine months. Issuers of commercial paper find it to be an attractive way to fund their ongoing operations because yields are low due to the short maturity. These issuers don't have to register the securities with the the SEC or the Securities and Exchange Commission as long as the maturities are less than nine months. This significantly reduces the regulatory burden for these issuers. So it depends on property law and contract law, these these securities and, and other securities like that, such as repo agreements and some other ones that we're going to talk about briefly in this episode. But that's the thing to recognize, that they're not regulated in the same way that a a longer term bond is regulated. They don't have to reg they don't have to register each commercial paper issuance with the SEC. Now, it's also a, an, an attractive place for those that invest in commercial paper. That's because it's a, it's a cash equivalent. The short-term maturity means its value is stable and doesn't fluctuate like longer-term bonds. And so an institutional investor, they can invest in treasury bills, they can invest in cash, they can invest in commercial paper, they can invest in repurchase agreement, these are all very short-term debt that, that doesn't really change in value over the, over the near term. Now, over the longer term, they, they'll obviously, because it's so short-term, will typically trail inflation, but they're not fluctuating day-to-day as interest rates change like longer-term bonds do. So commercial paper, it's convenient for investors to park cash and get a little higher yield than U.S. Treasury bills. How much is that yield? Well, the incremental yield between 1997 and 2007 for the 
a three-month, the sort of the spread between the three-month commercial paper relative to three-month T-bills was about 0.25%. So not risk-free, but pretty close to risk-free. Now, institutional investors, they can buy commercial paper directly. But as individuals, we don't. But we, many of you probably have exposure to commercial paper and don't realize it. You get it through money market mutual funds, which, which are also a cash equivalent or a cash substitute, hopefully paying a little, little higher yield. So commercial paper and money market funds, like we would invest in, are indeed cash substitutes. They are liquid, they have low risk of default, and generally are stable in value in that prices don't fluctuate significantly from day to day. Now, the commercial paper market is part of what is known as the shadow banking system. And this past week, I read a fascinating book by Morgan Ricks. He's the a law professor at Vanderbilt University, and he's a former senior policy advisor at the U.S. Treasury Department, and he specializes in financial regulation. He writes that a shadow bank is an entity that is not a chartered deposit bank, and so they're not, they're not a typical traditional bank. They're a shadow bank in that they use large quantities of short-term debt to fund a portfolio of financial assets. And so they borrow short-term, and then they use those proceeds to fund their operations, often buying longer-term financial assets. Now, that differs from a traditional financial institution or a traditional bank, because, and, and we've talked about this in earlier episodes, a traditional bank And Ricks talks about this in his book, and his book is titled The Money Problem, Rethinking Financial Regulation. And and I I found the book and I read the book. I was first interested in it because I wanted to make sure he had a correct understanding of how banking worked. And as I was reading the book on the plane, I was was going through quickly, just, just please get it right. Please understand how banking works so that, because we want senior officials at the U.S. Treasury Department to understand how the financial system actually works. Please don't write that banks collect deposits and then lend them out. It's the exact opposite. Banks make loans and then they do accounting entries to create the deposit. Loans create deposits. And he actually put that line in there and he he quoted a, num- a, a number of other very early writers about banking, telling how banking actually works. Now, episode 94 of Money for the Rest of Us goes into this in great detail, so we're not going to rehash that here. Other than to recognize, shadow banks are different. Shadow banks don't have the power to create money like commercial banks do. Shadow banks borrow money short-term and then invest it long-term, either in their operations or in many cases, in structured investment vehicles, which are a special type of commercial paper. It's called asset-backed commercial paper. And and what these borrowers were doing, they were issuing commercial paper that was backed by financial collateral, including mortgage-backed securities. So these special investment vehicles would borrow commercial paper, 
a significant amount, and then we're investing it in mortgage-backed securities and other investment vehicles. And it was remarkably profitable because they were borrowing short-term and then investing long-term. Ricks writes in his book, The Money Problem, that the U.S. shadow banking system has existed outside the explicit banking safety net and for the most part with minimal regulatory constraints. Naturally, this freedom has been conducive to high returns, but the system has also proved fragile. The crisis that began in 2007 eventually tore through the entire shadow banking sector, and from there, the entire financial system into the economy. The root cause of the financial crisis were these shadow banks, and it was these short-term borrowings, including commercial paper. So at the beginning of 2007, there was $1.97 trillion of commercial paper outstanding in the U.S., with the financial sector accounting for 92% of the issuance. And half of it, or just over half, was this asset-backed commercial paper. And it's astounding how big it got. At the end of 2005, there was $689 billion of of asset-backed commercial paper outstanding. By August 8th, 2007, it was $1.2 trillion. And then it collapsed. And we're going to talk about how that collapse occurred. But by August 9th, 2009, there was only $416 billion. And so this particular type of commercial paper zoomed in terms of total amount outstanding. And then it collapsed because it has a very, very short maturity. And here's the thing about commercial paper and other short-term debts. Each The investors in it have the constant question, should they renew it? Should they redeem their paper or should they renew it? So in August 1st, 2007, the U.S. 30-day Treasury bill was yielding 5.06%. So this is just, remember, I wrote that blog post August 15th. So this is August 1st. Got Treasury yields about 5.06%. Be great. The Federal Reserve was raising rates leading into that because the economy was was quite strong. Be great to have 5% yield, 30-day Treasuries, 5% yield. We'd love that today. That that certainly would beat inflation, but we're not even close to that. So the day before, August 1st, so July 31st, two Bear Stearns hedge funds that invested in subprime mortgages filed for bankruptcy. And a week later, PMB Paribas, and I probably mispronounced that because I don't speak French, suspended withdrawal from three investment funds because it could no longer determine the value of mortgages and other investments held by the fund. Those events caused some investors who had invested in asset-backed commercial paper to begin to doubt about the value of the financial collateral, such as mortgage-backed securities that back the commercial papers. And as I mentioned, holders of short-term debt debt, such as commercial paper, they must decide on an ongoing basis whether to redeem the instrument for cash or roll it over and continue investing. These investors know when you invest in commercial paper, you know the issuer doesn't have sufficient cash to meet redemptions if everyone decides to redeem at once. Here's how Rick writes it. He puts it, as long as each account holder 
thinks it is extremely unlikely that others will redeem in mass, no account holder has reason to redeem. By mid-August 2007, more and more investors elected to redeem their short-term debt holdings, including commercial paper, and move the money into U.S. Treasury bills. And that, that shift drove down the yield on U.S. Treasuries. By August 14, 2007, it had declined modestly from 5.01% down to 4.6%. But two days later, as the panic began to build, yields plummeted to 3.03%. And by August 20th, T-bill yields fell to 2.35%. Think about that. Almost a 2.5% drop in 30-day Treasury bill yields in a matter of days. And then they rebounded to just over 4%. Meanwhile, even though the yield on T-bills was dropping, commercial paper yields, they didn't necessarily budge. They sort of stayed about the same, but the spread, the difference between commercial paper yields and T-bill yields widened to 0.8%. And that's what I mentioned in my blog post, the widest it had been since the year 2000. But later that year, as commercial paper rates rose and T-bill yields fell, the spread between the two surpassed 2%. And in September 2008, following the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, the average spread between three-month commercial paper relative to three-month T-bill yields was over five percentage points. In mid-September, September 16, 2008, the Reserve Primary Fund, this was a money market fund, which invested in commercial paper, had $65 billion in assets. It announced it had incurred significant losses with its holding of Lehman Brothers commercial paper. And as a result, it lowered its price per share from a dollar to 97 cents. Now, that's about a 3% decline. That doesn't seem like much. But remember, commercial paper and money market funds are cash equivalents. They're considered substitutes. Why? Because they're stable in value. A 3% loss is not stable in value. And so short-term debt and money market funds, the stability of those instruments became very much in doubt. And investors redeemed en masse. It was a modern-day bank run. Within days, $172 billion was redeemed from the $3.5 trillion in money market assets. Those money market funds and others, holders of short-term debt, were likewise redeeming their holdings. If you're a money market fund, you have people wanting their cash. You have to sell securities. You have to sell commercial paper and, and not roll it over, which means the issuers of commercial paper had to raise cash. How did they do that? They were dumping bonds and any other assets they could find into the financial markets. There was a fire sale. And the results is the bond instrument prices fell because there wasn't the demand and their yields skyrocketed. The yields on investment-grade bonds, the yields on non-investment-grade bonds, and that rise in interest rates made it very difficult for companies that fund their operations, that, that are borrowing for inventory, they're borrowing for investment, they were borrowing... They're financing their ability to produce goods and services. The output of goods and services was severely restricted and the ability of households and businesses to buy that output. In other words, you couldn't borrow to buy stuff like you could 
a year earlier, you couldn't borrow at the attractive rates to, to produce output. And that meant output decline because businesses were producing less and households were buying less. And that is the textbook recession or definition of a recession. GDP contracted. Why did GDP fall and contract and the recession start? It was the panic. It was the modern day bank run. It was the investors worried that they weren't going to get their money back in these stable, traditionally stable, very high quality, short term debt. But it was a run on the bank. Would you get your money back? And that ultimately led to the recession. Before we look at how the panic was stopped and why it could happen again, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. Trusted by more than 19,000 companies, it's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. In 1873, Walter Baggett wrote in his book titled Lombard Street, a description of the money market that theory suggests and experience proves that in a panic, the holders of the ultimate central bank should lend to all that bring good securities quickly, freely, and readily. By that policy, they allay a panic. By every other policy, they intensify it. He continued, The only safe plan for the central bank is the brave plan to lend in a panic on every kind of current security or every sort on which money is ordinarily and usually lent. 135 years later, that is exactly the course the U.S. Federal Reserve took. Not only did the central bank announce on September 19, 2008, that they would provide deposit insurance on money market fund investments, But on October 26, 2008, the Federal Reserve started buying commercial paper directly. In other words, the central bank acted as a lender of last resort, purchasing billions of dollars of commercial paper and other assets from traditional banks, shadow banks, and other entities. By January 2009, the Federal Reserve was the single largest purchaser of commercial paper with holdings worth $357 billion, or 22% of the market. This is according to a paper written by Marcin Kaspersisk and Philip Shambol, titled, When Safe Proved Risky, Commercial Paper During the Financial Crisis of 2007-2008. 
2009. So the central bank stepped in and, and stemmed the panic because they were willing to buy the assets. So there didn't need to be a fire sale of assets of commercial paper and, and other bonds. And, and that, that helped solve the panic. But the recession existed. There was definitely a contraction. And that contraction lasted until mid-2009. And in some ways, we're still recovering. Some things have never gotten back. Now, there's this concept that's out there, and I actually thought this was the case, that after you have a recession, there's something called an output gap. In other words, you have the trajectory the economy was going, so it was going up, going up, getting bigger and bigger as as businesses were producing more and more goods and services. But then there's a contraction, and so there's a drop-off. So there needs to be a recovery. And and the idea is there's a fast recovery, so we can make up and close that output gap. So you're going to get faster economic growth after a recession in order to make up the gap. It turns out that's not true. There's a paper titled Potential Output and Recessions, Are We Fooling Ourselves? It's by Robert Martin, Tiana Munyon, and Beth Ann Wilson. I will have links to that paper and the other papers that I've mentioned, as well as the book by Morgan Ricks in the show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com, or you can also get that via email on a weekly basis, all the show notes and a summary article by signing up for my free insider's guide. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com on the homepage. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222 and you'll get signed up for the Insider's Guide. So in the paper, they looked at the, the impact of recessions. They looked at 23 advanced economies over a 40-year period, and they looked at how severe was the recession and how quickly was the recovery. And what was their conclusion? They write, we find little support for the view that output rises faster than trend immediately following recessions to close the output gap. Indeed, we find little evidence that growth is faster following recessions than before. If anything, post-trough growth is slower. And then they, they go on to explain, instead of the output gap narrowing because economic growth got faster, it's that, that, that economists lower the trend. In other words, they say the trend line was lower. They, they lower the top line rather than the, the economic growth, the bottom line. And they close it that way by, by reducing their expectations of how fast the economy should be growing. And so there's some benefit in to avoiding recessions. In fact, I, I, there was a paper, and I don't know if I tweeted, I couldn't find it. Or it was a book, and it talked about, and there was this idea that you know, the, the, the growth in the 19th century wasn't necessarily any slower than the growth in the 20th century. They just had more panics, more recessions that knocked down the, the, the growth. But when the economy was going along well, it was growing as fast as it was in the 20th century. But it's the recessions. And that, and not every recession is is caused by a panic. There was a recession following the internet bust in 2000, 2001. It was a modest recession. There wasn't a financial panic. And so just, I'm not saying that every recession 
has to have a financial panic. And in fact, financial panics are rare. But the deep recessions, such as what occurred in Japan, such as the Great Depression with the, with the bank runs there, the modern-day bank runs that, that occurred in 2007 and 2008 led to a very, very deep recession, and, and we're still recovering. So the, the title are clues for the next financial crisis. And here's the scary part. Despite all the regulation that has been passed with Dodd-Frank and many, many, many rules uh, of regulation, there hasn't been anything to really solve the core issue, how we can have modern-day bank runs. If investors panic and we have these shadow banks that are issuing short-term debt and then investing long and then the, the investors in, in the short-term debt feel like that maybe they're not going to get paid or other investors are going to redeem at the same time, and that can cause a panic. Now, the solution is always the central bank, the Federal Reserve, the lender of last resort. But as Ricks writes in his paper, there, there's a risk to that. And, and that is this idea that what's known as, as moral hazard, the fact that institutions know that the central bank can step in, can lead for companies to take on more risk. He writes, I argue that our modern policy response to panics, basically a standing commitment of public support for the financial sector's short-term debt, may in fact be a source of debt-fueled bubbles, credit boom, over-leverage, or whatever one chooses to call it. It can happen again because there isn't the, the well, in his book, he, he says we should outlaw a lot of these these cash equivalents, such as commercial paper, repo agreements or things like that. I don't know if that's going to happen, but this this panic can happen again because we are, there is still a trillions and trillions of dollars of these money market type instruments where companies are issuing short-term debt and then they're investing in long-term assets so they don't have the cash. So if their investors won't roll over the commercial paper and other securities, the companies will again have to sell assets at fire sale prices that can cause interest rates to spike and that can lead to the inability of companies and their willingness to borrow and households to borrow, and that can lead to another recession. And we can start all over again. So what are some clues? What should we be looking at for signs of stress? This is rare. Mostly everything is fine. There's two measures. One is the, the spread. So we're looking at spreads that show distress. Just like back in August 2007, I noticed the, the spread between commercial paper and UST bills was widening. We can look at two other spreads. One, well, we could certainly look at that. So we want to look at the overall absolute spreads of commercial paper and other short-term debt relative to treasuries. We can look at what's known as the LIBOR OIS spread. So the London Interbank Offer Rate, that's the average rate that banks charge each other for short-term loans. And that can be compared to the overnight index swap, which essentially is the Fed funds rate, the very short-term implied rate that the Federal Reserve has set short-term monetary policy. And so if we see 
a, a widening out of that where banks are afraid to lend to each other. So they raise the LIBOR rate that that gets raised compared to essentially the Fed funds rate. That's a sign of distress. Another one is comparing the yields on credit default swapped with the yields on bonds. So what are credit default, credit default swaps? They're derivatives in which investors make side bets on, on corporations and their credits. And so you, you essentially have a side agreement where you want protection against a particular company going default. And, and, and essentially you've, you've sent, you've have, you have a side agreement, a contract. So if the company defaults, then you get paid the difference between the principal value of the bond and the market's price. Because if it defaults, the value of the bond is going to fall. And so you get to pick that up. So that's a way to, to protect yourself or an institution, because we individuals, we can't buy these things, but institutions to buy it or to protect themselves. But we can compare that to the overall spread. And the way these things work is that credit default swaps, their yields should be pretty close to the, the spread on bonds. Something Sometimes it's called the option adjusted spread because it takes into effect that, that bonds have can can be redeemed early. But we're looking at the two. And if we're in a situation, and, and usually they're very, very close because if one price differs dramatically from the other, there's an arbitrage opportunity. An institutional investor can can buy the bond and also get protection by buying the credit default swap and essentially earn a, a risk-free rate. But if there's a big difference, that's a sign of distress in the marketplace. If yields start to balloon, balloon and are much higher than credit default swap yields, that's a sign of distress. Why is that a sign of distress? Because credit default swaps are private agreement. They're not subject to the same market forces that that bonds themselves are. If, if holders of bonds are dumping them at fire sale prices, their yields are going to go up much more than the yields in credit default swaps. So that's a sign of distress. Just looking at that, that's something we monitor, that I monitor, and I'm very, very close attention to, something that we'll share on money for the rest of us. Plus, right now everything's fine, so we don't have to worry about it, but it's something to monitor it. These are rare, but clues for the next financial crisis uh, are there for us to look and to watch out for. And so that is episode one. 55. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.